Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects and worldwide environmental issues. Today my featured coffee is from Red Bank Coffee Roasters. They're an excellent company guided by three main principles quality, traceability, and sustainability. I'll talk more about them at the end of this episode. In this episode, I talk with Joe Harkness. Joe is an avid birder, a Senko, Special Educational Needs Coordinator by trade, and author of the best-selling book, Bird Therapy. We talk about mental health and nature, twitching, his changing relationship with his book, criticisms of the nature celebrity world, and lots more in what is probably my longest episode to date. So, hi Joe, welcome to the podcast, finally. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to me. Um, I'm really glad that we're, we're getting to do this. I think I was talking to someone yesterday about this. I think we've been trying for about six or seven months to get this interview started. Oh, um, I reckon longer. I reckon it's probably more like a year. Yeah. possibly possibly yeah it's it's i mean so the the reading of your book kind of um went along with the first the launch of the podcast it was a similar time frame so i have wanted to have you on the podcast since the very beginning um so this is a, a real joy to finally sit down virtually and have this chat um we'll start it off as we always do by getting to know you could you tell me a bit about yourself and where your interest in nature really got off the ground? Yeah, so um, it, it all kind of stems from my, well, it does all stem from my granddad. He, um, I'm sure a lot of people say things like this to you, actually, you know, a family member or a grandparent. Um, I think what's quite or almost unique in, in my story is that my granddad, um, kind of stood in for a father for me so I grew up in a single parent family and um, in the absence of a father my granddad was very proactive in doing stuff with me and showing me things and teaching me things and one of the things we did a lot was go around in his car so he could work and so my mum could work but while we were in his car he would show me things and then when we stopped he would show me more things and invariably they were nature-based things and uh, often birds. What's interesting about my granddad is that he grew up on a houseboat in the village where I also um, spent some years with him and my grandma and that's Brundle in Norfolk um, for anyone that knows it it's kind of on the edge of the Broads complex and has a river running through it. So it's quite a serene place if if you get down to the river year there. And Grandad used to show me Great Crested Grebes. They're a a kind of, what's the word? An iconic bird for me, the Great Crested Grebe, because of him. Kestrels are too, I wrote about them in bird therapy. It's uh, a bird that granddad pointed out to me a lot and I can't see without thinking of him in a good way. Um, granddad is still with us, by the way. I made it sound like he wasn't there. Um, yeah, I, did, I didn't quite want to ask. 
Yes, okay. I thought I'd beat you to it. He, um, yeah, he, he's still around. I see him quite regularly, and uh, yeah, we we still talk. I mean, if I speak to him on the phone just for a catch up, the first thing he'll say is, "Oh, we see any good birds." etc so yeah granddad got me into it as a kid and then my life went on like a massive tangent and I became uh, very disinterested in anything like that um, my life was very focused on um, we're going to talk about it so I, I can say it now I guess I became very focused on drug taking um, on socializing on partying um, drinking and um, living a lifestyle that is very much at odds with was at odds with my mental health and only exacerbated the things that we'll go on to speak about today um so yeah i basically forgot about nature <laughs> for a long time the <laughs> best part of a decade and uh post breakdown in 2013 which is where birth therapy comes from and the whole kind of story concept idea um that's when i started going out walking uh, to, to do something really <laughs> basically I, I did a talk uh, yesterday actually and uh, I said to them I quite enjoy telling this part of, of my story I guess in that after I had my breakdown and I was signed off work for a bit I sat at home and did 1000 piece jigsaws to pass the time because I needed something to focus on now mm -hmm. shortly after this I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder so <laughs> the whole concept of just sitting and like doing jigsaws was probably not a good thing the the entire process and, and systeming of it was yeah probably counterintuitive but yeah uh my now wife was like you need to get out of the house and, and walk like just get out do something stop doing your jigsaws because they're gonna make you even worse and uh i did i went out walking and started noticing stuff and that's when the, the experience at the start of the book, seeing a pair of buzzards um, displaying over a tree line over a Norfolk field was so encapsulating and powerful that I needed that feeling again. It was so good. And uh, that's where the interest was sparked again. So it kind of came around full circle. And I like cycles and patterns. Of, you know, if you read the book, it's something I talk about quite a bit. So. I find it quite reassuring that it came back around again. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good answer, and you've actually answered my <laughs> second question within that answer as well, um, which is where your really where your kind of experiences with nature exposure as a therapeutic practice began. Um, but after after this this process, when did you really start um, thinking this is something? that I should be doing regularly this is when did you you know visibly notice that it was having a positive impact on you so I think at the same time I was the same time as starting to take an interest in in birding bird watching whatever you want to call it um we should probably make a, a distinction here mm. in that I I refer to it as bird watching and bird therapy just because I think it's an easier term for people to digest. I would, however, say that I am a birder in the sense that I am more, you know, I'm interested in the culture, the subculture, the science, the, the kind of trying to predict what and where 
as mm. much as I am as in enjoying all of the kind of just naturalness of, of, of birding and, and bird watching. See, this is where I confuse myself almost <laughs> with the two terms. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm very much a birder. And when I start to take more of an interest in it, the point where I realised it was having a positive impact on my mental health is when I started to connect with other people. So I talk about these five things that you can do, this five ways to well birding framework in the book. And one of them is to connect. And I think once I, I found there were a couple of other young people near me who were interested in birding, but much more experienced than me. These were guys that had been doing it, doing the hobby as, as adults for a few years. And once I knew that there were like-minded people out there, that was when like the switch happened that I could make something of the hobby. So once I crossed that line of, knowing I could engage with other people I then kind of pushed the interest further found out more did more research so that I, I suppose at that point it it was kind of borderline on becoming an obsession and that's where I had to well you know about it from the book but try loads of different approaches to birding to work out what worked for me and I actually think now George in hindsight that all the way through that process, even though I write extensively about how much of a positive impact it has on my well-being, it only becomes, in answer to your question, a genuine understanding of its benefits when I strip everything back at the end of the book and go back to basics, yeah? When I just, like, sack off the low you know the short i'm trying to think of the right way but it, the short distance twitching that i was doing with 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 um with a friend at the time and when i stopped really obsessing over a patch so much even though like a patch is an incredibly important thing to me and always will be because i still have like a patch as my priorities have changed in life and i understand that i can't be out all the time i was spoiled back then when i was writing bird therapy i had so much time and because of that i kept missing the point the point that i was trying to like drill home and i think when around the time bird therapy was actually physically published and we'd had our daughter i think It was only truly then that I understood that I could just go out every now and then for a little walk and it would still be amazing for me, for my soul, yeah, for my being. That walk, though, couldn't just be up. So I've got like a, a footpath just up the road, yeah. It could just be to there, to where the, the fields are, yeah, that I could, you know, it's just a horse field, but where I can look over an open space and just soak up being outside and it's a, it's amazing it's this cycle it's the cycle thing again isn't it i come full circle with the hobby doing all this crazy stuff trying all these different things thinking like birding is the most amazing thing ever there's so much you can do there's so many cool people out there there's so many things that i can try and all this equipment all these books blah 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 blah, blah. and then it was just like 
hey, there's a really nice field at the top of my road with an oak tree in it that has purple hair streak butterflies. Field fair feed on that field in winter. There's a tree line there. Sometimes a tip flop moves through that tree line. Do I actually need anything else? Not really. And that's, it's only in the past three years that our daughter's been taking up all of our time <laughs> that I've learned that. Massive lesson. Yeah, massive lesson. Sorry, that was a proper yeah. like... Yeah. No, that was, a, that was a good, um, yeah, a good ramble. Um, because it's just, it really encapsulated, I think, the spirit of um, what a lot of people see bird watching and birding as. Um, as you said, that is that distinction. You know, I, I could go out tonight and look for some low sort of evening dusky birds that will fly around with my binoculars or with my naked eye. Or I could then go back inside and I could make notes of those and put them into iRecord and whatnot and just, you know, really study them. And them. and that's where the distinction happens. And I think it's important to say on a big platform um, or on any platform that that's not that important. It, it's really, it's good because it sits in science and it's important for the greater community. But if you just need exposure to nature and time in nature, just go and do it. And just, you don't have to do all the follow-ups to it. And I think that is a really important message to put across for sure. Yes, George. It's just absolutely nailed it. And it was the message of bird therapy and the message got lost at times because I was doing so many different things, but that undercurrent always sat through that book and then right at the end. So I'm really honest about the fact I do not like bird therapy. Yeah. It, it has caused me more trouble than anything else. But at the end of that book, I'll tell you what happened yesterday, right? I, di I did this local talk and our local vicar came up to me and said, I've been trying to get you to sign this book for a year now. Uh, see, there's a theme here, George, right? <laughs> it takes a year to pin me down. Yeah. And um, <laughs> it happened with David Lindo as well. I think it took two years for him to pin me down. <laughs> so don't take it personally. Um, anyway, the vicar came up and was like, can you specifically sign this page, please? And it was the last page of chapter seven, which is about a, a patch, learning about a patch. And there's a bit about spiritual connections with places. And isn't that, I'm, I'm throwing it, it's a rhetorical question really, but isn't that also why we go out and engage with nature? because we need to feel belonging. We are part of nature. We are part of the very term nature. We are nature, yeah? Because we sit in various chains and systems and, and such like. And when we just go out and be and feel connected, it's so much better than like putting boundaries and structure into what we're trying to achieve i think the the achievement side of the hobby is also really interesting um i'm not going to start talking about it we'll see if it comes up again but you're so right if you can just let it go 
Nice little frozen reference there. <laughs> the bane of my life at the minute with the toddler. Um, yeah, if you can just let it go for a bit and embrace just being, it's, it's so much better. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I just love the way you grabbed that. It was great. No, I, th I think it's something that we've all got to really recognise in the birding community because it's just, you know, I've got friends who are bird ringers. I've interviewed a course mate on the podcast before who's a licensed bird ringer who does it regularly, who will go out and engage in citizen science. And there's been one or two times throughout our first year of university when I've messaged her or she's messaged me and we've gone... Um, we don't we're tired of staring at screens we're tired of staring at we just want to go out with our binoculars and look at birds that's, that's all yeah. we want we don't want to take photos anymore we don't want to look at, at microsoft teams or youtube university for any longer we we want to go out and just look at birds um and experience nature and it's it's an incredibly healing thing when you go and do that um, and I, I try when I do that on my own, I really try not to take my phone with me anymore or any paper or pen or anything. Otherwise, I will involuntarily make lists. It's just in my nature. I'll just start listing the bird species and the. Oh, yeah, I still I, I do it. I, I still do it. And I was it's, it's interesting because I've become very in, into moth trapping at home because it gives me a way of connecting with nature at home. Yeah, as well as the garden birds, and, and but they're so quiet at this time of the year. The garden birds, so it's kind of finding something to fill the void, I guess. But anyway, we're doing the, the moth trapping and keeping a, a really stringent list of every single moth in the trap every day, and then realizing with with a full time job in a school and three year old, it's just not possible to go through. Well, I'll tell you what happened. I opened it one morning, and there was nearly three hundred moths in there, in the height of the, <laughs> well, the season. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I was like, I can't go through this yeah. in like 20 minutes before I go to work. And I was proven that because when the summer holidays started, I had a similar number, 270 odd. And I did go through them all. And it took well over an hour to go through everything. But probably the best part of the rest of the day to try and identify some of the stuff that was in there. Now, my mate said to me the other day, why don't you just make a note of when you see something new? And I was like, Oh yeah, that would save quite a lot of time, wouldn't it? He was like, why do you need to know everything there? Do you upload all your records to the moth recorder? And I was like, no, I don't have time. And he was like, well, then why are you keeping a full record of numbers? Because you're not doing it for anyone but yourself. Just, you know, what? why? Why are you doing it? And I was like, oh, I can't really answer that question. And you kind of yeah. busted me out. And I've stopped it last week. I've run the trap the trap is on actually tonight and then um, i'll just go in the morning and if there's anything new then awesome um and if there isn't then it doesn't really matter does it yeah that's a that's a great attitude to have i mean looking at almost the polar opposite of that bird watching and birding and different factions of those communities they're becoming very popular they are becoming more popular and pe more people are going out and doing these things so much so that some there's a lot of people throughout the lot you know i don't know how long it's been going on but there's a, a big community of these these people called twitchers they travel <laughs> they're they're this strange breed of of human that travels hundreds of miles if not thousands of miles migrates 
to various patches and uh, pays huge amounts of money on the off chance that they might see a rare species of bird um which i mean is a is a i i respect that i respect their dedication and if you've got the time and effort and money and resource to go and have a 30 percent chance of seeing a cool finch um that's that's sure it's up to you um but as a bird birder who is generally takes a bit more of a relaxed approach to things what's your and, and who forgive me if i'm wrong but probably takes great comfort in spending time in wild and generally empty places of, of empty other humans what's your opinion of the twitching community what do you think of them oh, you're up the right can of worms george because the amount of times i've been called anti-twitcher but i'm not anti-twitcher i I tried, it's a strange like, term, that, isn't it? It is. I tried Norfolk twitching with... It does sound weird, actually, that you said that. I tried twitching, um, but no one can see my physical twitch here. Um, I've tried twitching um, in Norfolk. And I've seen some amazing birds because of that. You know, Ictorina warbler I wouldn't have seen still hold out. I hope that I'll find one um, one of these days, but... Yeah, like Ictorine Warbler, I wouldn't have seen. Um, Marsh Warbler, I wouldn't have seen. Um, well heard, because they're all about the song. Um, God, what else have I seen? The Citral Finch at Burnham Overy Dunes that I wrote about in Bird Therapy. Now that, that epitomises twitching. Okay, I'll summarise the story, and then I'll expand on my opinion. Um, sure. Stupidly rare bird, second ever record of it in England. Um, first record on mainland England. The only other one was on Shetland. Looks like a little green finch. In fact, to all intents and purposes, it is a green finch with a bit more grey on it. Um, it's just funny because you said about finches earlier. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just yeah. chuckling at how many um, twitchers going to listen to this and be screaming into their pillows. Um, because you just insulted their bird. It's not a green finch. Well, do you know what? I was insulted at, at that twitch, right? Because I was standing there looking with my mate. And he's going, can you see it? Can you see it? And I'm like, yeah, it just looks like a green finch. And he's like, no, nah, it's citral finch. And I was like, all right. And out of nowhere, this geezer basically just walked into me. Big guy. We're talking... I'm like five foot ten. I'm not short, but I'm not tall either. This geezer must have been about six and a half foot huge as well. And not, not you know, his head, she was a big guy. He put his arms under my shoulders in like a, it's got a name, the lift. Like, I, I want to call it like a fisherman's lift, or I don't know what it's called. I'm just going to yeah. call it that. <laughs> Lifted me up off the ground, moved me, put me down, like... <laughs> few feet to the side and just started looking at the bed and i just stood there like like this and what no one can see my happened? face on, on the podcast yeah yeah i was i just sort of was staring at him like completely aghast like what has actually just happened but he was also really big so i was like i'm not going to say anything because i'm a bit of a pussy and uh, he goes well you saw it didn't you and i was like uh, uh, yeah and then I said to my mate, I can't deal with this. I need, need to leave. It's making me like proper anxious. 
she went and sat on a hide and we had to chat about it and I really wanted to get to understand why 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 to see all these birds that we were going to see um I'm just I could start reading off other ones I've seen with him Isabeline weeds here desert weeds here um he took well, we went to the Brex and I saw like some of the Brex specialities in in the Breckland in Norfolk for the first time um ironically then saw almost all of them on my local patch once I tried hard enough anyway I did all that <clears throat> and and you know never really understood what it was because it only ever made me feel really anxious a people I want to enjoy my hobby on my own like you said you know comfort in wild places and all that but here was like a hundred people standing around a, a bowl in the ground looking at a bird um and that increased I think like I, I don't want to say a figure but I'm sure like a thousand people must have come and seen that bird on that day maybe more it was only there for a day and so that's just not my scene right but that's a personal thing yeah that's that's me I, I can't deal with that I don't think I could cope with the, the dip it's called a dip when you travel all that way and you don't see the bird that you've gone to see so example um there's been this black black black-browed albatross in York, East Yorkshire or wherever, North Yorkshire, for, I don't know, over a month now. And people are going to see it all the time and twitching it, and it disappears sometimes for the best part of the day. And there are people that are travelling across the country and they're not seeing it. That's called a dip, yeah? Imagine the impact that would have on your mental health if you just did put all that money, all that petrol. Don't get me started on that either. The, carbon side of it and um you know all that money all that petrol all that time and you don't see what you'd aim to see that would be gutting and i know that a couple of people who spoke to me about it when i was writing bird therapy who were happy to have their quotes put in the book have been really negatively affected by dipping birds and um there's that side of it so there's the whole mental health side of it but then there's the whole can you really justify driving across the country in the space of a day and you know i don't know it, it does have an impact on the environment no matter how negligible it is um i don't i only use my car for work really um i do all my local birding on foot within 1.5 miles of my house so that i can take my little girl if she wants to come i've made that really defined choice to try and do something for the environment i just can't in my head justify driving all that way but anyway aside of all of this just to kind of reaffirm the fact that it, it is okay to have this you know this not negative opinion but this different opinion on twitching everyone that i asked who so some big name people i'm not going to say their names now but some big name people in the twitching world you would know who i mean if i told you who all said no to an interview for bird therapy mm. as to what they got their kicks out of why they did it whether it had impacted on their home and family lives you know whether they felt that hardcore twitching had impacted their mental health they all said no every single one of them couldn't get someone to commit i just ask you why it's a rhetorical question there was a reason though, wasn't there? Yeah, I'm sure there was. Um, I, I 
I definitely agree. I I wouldn't be able to cope with it. It's why I went. Um, there's been several things, you know, the the albatross. Um, I'm gonna say bearded vulture here because I cannot pronounce the other word without. Oh, guy. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> I just can't yeah. do it. I I said um, lemurgia once, and my friend almost slaughtered nice. me. Um, <laughs> she was so angry. Um, but uh, yeah, that's why I didn't. The the bearded vulture in the Peak District for a long time didn't go and see that. The walrus in Wales didn't go and see that. There's just th- these are once in possibly once in a lifetime opportunities, and for me to go from Reading to the Peak District would have taken a full day on public. I don't drive public transport, trains, buses, weird little yeah. branch lines and wobbly bus routes through the mountains. I possibly would have taken about fifteen hours to get up there. And probably wouldn't have seen it. And I don't think I, I could have. Yeah, I couldn't I have coped go. with that. I don't think. I think that would have been a massive, like, devastating. So I don't. And that's that's a pretty impressive bird, considering yeah, some people absolutely. do that that same journey, but for something that's this big and be, still beautiful. But George, I was at work like last year, and it was during the lockdown. Well, the, when the lockdown was ending, actually, and people were starting to go out again. And uh, there was a llama guy in a field, what, four miles from my house? Like, I realistically could have cycled there, yeah, yeah. and seen it if I was at home. Or just jumped in one of my many friends who drove to go and see it. Cars, they could have picked me up on the way past. But I was at work, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It is what it is. Yeah. Odd job, yeah. Some would say, yeah, but you missed like an insane bird in your local area. Yeah, I did, but I'm at work. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, what it is. just can't always give up the the time and resources. It's a it's a big right. undertaking. It's a it's a really big one. Um, jumping over, I want to jump over to someone something a little different, but something you touched on earlier. Um, on various platforms you've spoken before and obviously in the book about the importance of your local patch and your changing relationship with your local patch Um, small area where you regularly visit and observe different species and changing seasons etc do you think that they're like try and keep this kind of condensed because it's quite a big question Uh, it's really hard to squash down but do you think there's any added med- mental health? Obviously, we know there's mental health benefits to being in nature, but do you think those increase when you have this regular patch that you go to? Yeah, and I, it, it, it does, yeah. And I touched upon it earlier, didn't I, that mm. in some respects, stripping that all back and not having somewhere to go to so regularly or having it but not having the time doesn't have to be a bad thing either i think i think what it's about is the quality of the time that you do spend somewhere so i'm going to sound like proper hippie-ish here but i really like especially in the summer just sitting down somewhere (laughs) and like just chilling and listening to birds and insects and I suppose you could call it meadow bathing 
Well, you're just grounding yourself, aren't you? Really? Yeah, I quite happily i'll tell you what as well once you know a place you know where to go if you if you need to get like a fix of seeing some birds or some day flying moths or some butterflies you know like you just aim yourself for somewhere don't you like without even thinking like this bramble patch or this big old buglier or you know a little lake something like that you just you go there automatically you don't even really think about it because you know that you can connect with something while you're there and that's fantastic i think there is a huge added benefit to fixing the place that you go to because you like you say you get to know it you understand it you become part of it however one thing i have learned more recently and and this is from going to different places with our daughter and i don't mean going to different places like to connect with nature i mean just going to a different venue for a children's activity of some description i'm trying not to advertise any (laughs) but you know a a local farm that does children's activities for example like you go there Um, there is also great benefits in variation as well so I go, and and this is, I'm picking it a little bit without going into too much detail. I go to places where there are less people. In most cases, no people, because that's what I want to do. However, I'm not going to get to learn about the different species of wader in their summer plumage, wader wading birds, yeah, in their summer plumage, if I don't go to a reserve that's especially designed for those birds. I will see a couple of migrant wader species in my local area, but I will not see necessarily a pectoral sandpiper or a wood sandpiper. A pectoral sandpiper was a pretty extreme example. We'll use wood sandpiper as a slightly more, I may see one on a flooded field here. I have seen them fairly locally, um, six miles up the road. But, you know, I, prefer personally being as you say grounded to a a small microcosmic area or a place and for me that's about ritualistic behavior so that's about understanding that if i go to the lake at the bottom of the road near the house and walk a mile down the road by that lake on the week commencing the 16th of April through to the 24th, maybe, of April, there will be a removal. There's one there every year. There was two this year, very exciting. But there will be one. And that is because I've learned what will come and how that calendar works here. So I say that, we had a black red star in our garden a couple of years ago, didn't come last year. So not everything is clockwork in nature. Always the same. Yeah, yeah, sporadic. But those those localised common resident birds will always be there. In fact, the same birds will take up territories in the same place. Now, that is all about understanding how a place works. And that is such a powerful connection to have with an area, isn't it? Like, I know what's going to happen when... And I'm mapping it and plotting it and understanding it, and I'm becoming more and more a part of it. 
over the years. Yeah, I'm having a I'm having a moment here, an epiphanal <laughs> moment of just what a powerful thing it is. Um, I do really miss both the local patches. Well, there's one combined area um, for one of them, and then another local place that I covered for someone else. So I miss both those places, and I do occasionally go back, but they don't feel the same because that relationship has broken down as it would do with a person. Um, once the relationship's broken, you the connection is weaker. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Oh, there's a there's a weird lag. I don't know if you're getting that. But um no. occasionally I can not not always, but occasionally I can hear myself coming out of your speakers back through my speakers and then into my microphone. Um it's always fun. That's weird. Um, but I'm sure it'll be fine. I can but yeah, that that was a really um really good answer because I think it does really um yeah I've, I've never had a patch i've never been able to stick to one place for long enough but i think i've probably had subconscious patches like my, my garden for example i have never studied it intensively but i just just through teaching my younger brother or my younger sisters about the nature in it or just by looking looking out the window I've kind of yeah. picked up on subconscious patterns. So I know when the two collared doves are going to start nesting. I know when the jays will appear. Um, I just know when things are, it's a town, small town garden. I know when things are going to come and when things are not going to come, it's just going to, there's almost guaranteed to be a red kite every so often, every couple yeah. of days flying over because we're very near what, well, we're not very close, but we're, we're in the Southeast where they were yeah. released. So it's it's kind of they're a pest around in Reading, so yeah. <laughs> um, we we know these things are going to be here, and it, it's just very it's subconscious and it's it's calming to have that the regularity. Garden, the, the garden or whatever outdoor space that someone has access to is like the archetypal local patch, isn't it? Because yeah. it's yours. In whatever guise it comes, it's your little place. And in some people's cases, it's your gigantic place. Um, and, you know, that's where it all has to start, I think. You know, start at the centre of the nucleus before you expand out. Learn about what's happening where you are. And yeah. you'll learn more, more about you. It's the whole message of bird therapy, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I, was, I was really going to talk a lot about... Um, your relationship with your book but i think you have kind of covered that so far you've kind of i know you've, it's changed a lot um you've kind of got a, a love-hate relationship that has been publicized on your your social media and it's not spoke. the book that i hate it's it's not it's the, the is it the, the sort of i don't know the environments around it because i know you've you've yeah. spoken been vocal People. before about your um a little critical i guess of the nature celebrity world and i i think we all know what you're yeah. i'm not going to be uh, explicit but I, we all know what you're talking about a nature celebrity is someone who's involved in nature or wildlife or science communication or conservation and people yeah. outside of those areas will know who they are if you say 
this person they they will know even if they're not a nature person themselves um so i do very much understand that what i'd instead of trying to unpack that too much because that could take up an entire couple of podcast episodes (laughs) i think on its own um what i want to ask is do you think nature writing and science communication with the influx of these these people has it become too commercialized yes and no um i really long discussion with someone about this the other day someone asked me a question yesterday as well at the talk i did the the local talk which is really relative of this they were asking me about nature in education in schools because i work in education um that that is that spawned a discussion about inclusion and elitism basically so i i'll use what i spoke about yesterday as the foundation for my answer really there there will soon be a natural history gcse and everybody thinks that it will be the answer to reconnecting young people with nature i work in a a small independent school for young people with um diagnosed mental health needs and i i won't be able to offer you know our school won't be able to offer the natural history gcse we have including myself we three staff who would be incredible at delivering it but we won't be able to do it because we don't have the resource base to deliver it plus we probably would have one child who would be able to commit to it personally and academically now that already shuts with we have 35 students that shuts like 34 of them out now in a mainstream school does that then and there is a point to all of this george which will answer your question i promise you that in a mainstream school you just are you going to have the same thing again are you going to have one class of kids who do it half who complete it or qualify in it because it still has to be graded just because someone takes a natural history gcse doesn't mean they will pass it and in those infant years of the qualification it will be it will be teething so understanding how it works it will change a lot now that elitism is what i see in those sectors that we spoke about so i hate to say this but i work with kids that come from really difficult places they don't care about the jazzy posts on social media trying to connect people with nature right they don't watch wildlife programs on television some of them probably don't have televisions realistically they don't have parents who are interested in nature and engaging them with nature what we end up with and what will perpetuate is the same kind of kids ending up doing 
what is happening now with science communication, those kids that break through, it's a very small, very, it's a handful of people, isn't it, who are yeah. becoming household yeah. names, rightly or wrongly. Now, the message that is given, <laughs> it comes in two guises. It's either really lyrical and beautifully written so that the majority of children who struggle to read cannot engage with it. They're already marginalised with this kind of approach to nature. I regret many of the passages in bird therapy for being overcomplicated. It didn't need to be that complicated. I tried too hard. It was never going to be good enough for the literary elite because I'm not a writer. I it's a writer's curse, I think. It's, um, exactly. Just uh, exactly. always trying to be too, too perfect. I'm perfectionist myself. I know exactly what you mean, and it ends okay. up just being overflower, overflowery, and just right, uh, exactly. Or what you then get is people who are just trying way too hard to engage people with loads of content, engaging content. Right? If if I was to show that content to some streetwise kids from where I live. Kids, you really want to get engaged with nature because they just don't have any engagement with it. They tell me to, you know what off, right? And say, who is this, who is this loser, right? Now I would don't look at that person and think they're a loser. I think they're amazing, you know, really good communicators, but it's just, uh, there's just not enough, like I, I don't think there are enough real people um, giving messages to kids about engaging with wildlife. I think we hit, uh, I'm not going to start talking about class and background and privilege, although David Lindo asked me a really interesting question about privilege, right? Privilege is, is not just defined by one of the protected characteristics of the Equality Act, okay? Someone can be privileged because their parents read to them when they were a child. They were privileged by communication. They were privileged by mm -hmm. learning. Mm -hmm. They were privileged to have that experience in childhood. Now, that's the example I used with him. We are just missing a trick. Like, less social media, people need to just get out and do stuff. I take moths into school. I take my binoculars in. I get my scope out of the boot of the car and show kids how it works. Like, we, we do stuff. We go and look at things. I show them how to pot a moth in a glass pot. I take my sweep net, we catch a, an insect, we look at it, they freak out. We look at something under the hand lens, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe it looks like this. That's, that should be the communication that we do. Um, yeah, so I'm not gonna go on about it anymore. I, because you're right, there's so much, I could say so much and it, none of it is personal. I took it all really personally to start with um all the people that said they'd do this and didn't and understandably so well i realized that i was just commodified in the same way that many people commodify their relationship with nature in order to have a career and you know you are a product everyone's a product at the end of the day that's how society works isn't it we're all yeah. Yeah, you're, uh, <laughs> you're telling that to the right person, having, go, you know, going into wildlife photography, you really, in studying it, especially, you really need to be careful that you don't 
fall into the trap of being too niched. Everyone's saying you need to find this niche and a lot of wildlife photographers, young people, then go, oh, well, that means I need to take the same photos as everyone else to be able to sell calendars and prints and that's how I'm going to make my living uh, or I'm going to go and work for the BBC. Um, <laughs> nothing wrong with those two career Sorry. choices. Um, no, nothing, yeah. nothing wrong with those two career choices. I just don't it, it's the same similar thing it's is engagement with wildlife is a little too commercialized especially in the uk and it's just it um it, it, but, it's but not also, anyone's oh. fault i think it's it's because we've grown up with this you know almost everyone that i've spoken to who grew up in some sort of privileged position grew up watching blue chip bbc documentaries david attenborough films and went that's what i want to do when i'm older and then they did something with nature and they may have changed their opinions or their mind since but that's where their fascination when nature started was watching bbc david attenborough programs or you know just that's a lot of people and but on the other hand, also a lot of people, their fascination started by just going out and picking up a wood louse and letting it crawl over their yeah. hand. Um, I know that that's where my fascination started. Love wood louse. They're, they're great. But um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one to navigate, I think, in it the is. UK. Um, it's tricky. What were you going to say? Sorry. I can't remember now. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I'll have like, it's all right. I'll have like this amazing, profound thought and it lasts like a second because I have to carry on listening to you um, to stay focused on what we're talking about. I'm a nightmare for that. Um, I, I know what you mean. Don't worry at all. Um, I mean, to, to talking on the same theme as education, really, um, not going to go on for a great deal about it, but one thing I really want to just plug um is your bird therapy teaching pack because you've been yeah. pu pushing that out there wherever possible um can you just give me like an elevator pitch of what is it and why people should be using it and downloading it and talking to you about it yeah so i am a uh, senko special educational needs coordinator by trade um i've taught for nearly a decade in specialist settings bird therapy whether i like it or not makes sense to a lot of people combining that with what i do for a proper job if you like um was win-win um so i spent the best part of the year putting a teaching pack together i love it way more than the book it's got a, an activity based on a chapter of the book all the way through it um it's free anyone can download it from my website joeharkness.co.uk i've tried all the activities in it they're all things I've taught. They work. I know they work. Um, quite a lot of people have downloaded it. Thousands of people have downloaded it. So that's really cool. Um, yeah, that's it, really. I love it. Cool. Go, yeah. I'm always happy yeah. when I talk about the teaching pack. I always get yeah. angry when I talk about the book. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think they're important. It is important to talk about the book and reflect on your Too experiences. Right, yeah. um, but yeah, the teaching back is something that when I first saw it, I really wanted to kind of just be like, mm, I, I'm not a teacher. I'm not naturally a teacher, but it is something that you don't have to be a teacher to use. You can just use it with your little siblings. Um, like, yeah, yeah, I do in the garden. 
and it's yeah it's a great great thing and a great tool um i think so yeah people can find that on your website which i'll link i'll link all those down below um before we finish we're going to do a little quick fire round if that's okay this is yeah i love a quick fire round this this is four quick questions or as i said to my guest last night um it it's not really quick fire anymore so it's the same questions that i've asked every guest all through the podcast um and about halfway through i think season two uh somebody just basically went on a ramble on this one answer and it lasted about three minutes and i thought (laughs) This is no, some people are giving really good answers and I'm editing them short. I just need to let them ramble. So if you need to ramble, go for it. But if you want to keep it as short and quick as possible. Um, first off, impossible question. What's your favorite animal? <laughs> it's very rare. I'm stunned into silence. Um Jesus Christ, what a question. It's um, very I I I'm gonna reassure you and say that it is very rare. I probably had about four or five people on the podcast out of twenty-four who have instantly been able to tell me. Dunnock for a bed. Sloth. Sloth for any other animal. Yeah. Sharks loved them when I was a kid. There you go. Three yeah. can't narrow it down. Any Fair shark, enough. love them. Yeah, sharks, sharks are amazing. They, uh, I'm hope hoping once it once I uh, get these chase these people up that hopefully I'll get a whole episode on sharks and why they're so cool Gosh. and non demonization of sharks and whatnot. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, as I said, impossible question, but you answered yeah. it well. You actually <laughs> answered it, which is surprising. Some people just don't. Some people are like, nope can't tell you that i love donix man absolutely oh yeah yeah i just they bring a little (laughs) smile to my face every time i see one it's just instantly lights up my day a little donix team donix man yeah for sure um (laughs) oh student loan as soon as that comes in i need to pick up uh, a t-shirt when you next decide to to do them i um, will do another run of team donix ones they were very popular um, yeah, they are nice t-shirts as well. I, I did get one. I had to. <laughs> this is what I mean about the um, quick fire round. It's supposed to, that was supposed to be an instant answer. Um, so next up, <laughs> where, where's a place you like to go and connect with nature? Like the one place right now that you feel most at home outside? At the minute, if I walk out of the house, um, hop the well, I don't even need to hop the fence. If I go through a bit of land I've been given access to, there's a complex of three interlinked wet meadows and there and i will just go on a tangent um and say that there is a um colony of uh micro moths grapholita jungiella um they're quality little moths really beautiful when you look at them up close there are several species of orchid um Growing there, marsh helleborines, um, common spotted, and what the hell, there was insane numbers of one of the other fairly common species, and I can't early marsh. There you go. Um, there was just so many there. Um, anyway, yeah, there because of the diversity, and in um, in the snow at the start of the year, I flushed up a jack snipe there. 
about 30 woodcock um, and two small flocks of teal. There are breeding grey wagtails on the sewage works next to it. So much just going on in such a small space. Absolutely love it. Yeah, that was beautiful. Yeah, Definitely. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard of, heard of a few places like that that are just like, you know, there's, there's some unlikely places that you don't think would hold that much diversity, but just flourish. Um, do you have a conservation hero? And by this wording of the question has changed a lot since I re-evaluated conservationist, what that means, but just someone you really look up to in your conservation or nature journey? Yeah, it's two, two people. Um... I do really, really admire Chris Packham and it isn't just because of the opportunities that he gave me. He is one of the only people other than myself, I've, I feel, who have genuinely said the truth about what they've experienced with negative mental health in the mainstream conservation kind of media but without like I don't think when we did what we did on Winter Watch either of us had like a hidden agenda we weren't even like it wasn't even about the book or anything really it was just he said we're gonna I'll tell you what happened right the director was leaving it was his last series and he said this is going to be the best thing we've ever filmed for Winter Watch he said I'm that's what it's going to be. He said, we know what we're going to do. We've got this completely and utterly planned out and we're going to, this is going to be so important. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm well up for that. And we did it. And I was, and I watched it back every now and then. And I'm just like, man, and then he wrote the foreword to my book and it was just mind blowing. But yeah. So on that side of the conservation world, it's him for just saying it how it is with regards to Asperger's and with regards to his mental health. But he isn't my conservation hero in the sense of my nature. Yeah. I'll have yeah. to tell him about this, but there's a guy who lives just up the road from me called Dave Appleton and he he just he knows like every single species of every single thing he's just an absolute encyclopedia of information about anything and I'm talking about anything right leaf hoppers yeah, fair enough. Weavers, yeah. uh, different fly families like tachinids. Um, what are them things that come in the moth trap? Lace wings. They're just whatever it is, he knows all about it, and he's incredible. And he loves wildlife so much that he's just dedicated his life to knowing about all of it. And he he is amazing. Um, he's my identification based conservation hero um, and when it comes to 
generally, I met David Attenborough and I regale this story all the time. Of course, he's like everyone's gateway. You've mentioned it earlier to the natural world. But when I met him, he said, what's bird therapy? I said, well, my story of how I discovered birdwatching and it became part of my, my therapy on my road to recovery. And he went, he put his hand on my arm and he went, let's just talk about your mental health. And it blew my mind. So we did, 10 minutes, I spoke to him. There's a really funny photo where this author, Derek Neiman, is in the background waiting for his time slot with David Attenborough. But me and David Attenborough are just talking about mental health. And uh, yeah. it blew my mind because I realised that he probably just always talks about nature, doesn't he? So he's a conservation hero because of that as well. And any landowner that allows a bit of their land to just go wild is my conservation hero. Yeah, those are great answers. <laughs> All great answers. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, the, the guy you mentioned who's encyclopedic knowledge um yeah i i know people like that who i can see just have such a a raw passion for nature that they will be like that in their throughout their entire life just people who will just suddenly be walking along i mean i i like to think that i'm like that but without all the knowledge um <laughs> i don't have as much of the yeah, knowledge no, but I, a lot I, of the drive yeah i am too um, like i know what I'm, what's around and what i'm looking at yeah. and what i'm hearing and but when it comes to like the, like you say the the heavy stuff last off and this is where you get your chance to tell your scar story if you would like to um how do you take your coffee <laughs> i love coffee george um in fact when i gave up drinking alcohol six years ago. I um, somewhat replaced it with coffee. Um, thankfully not at quite the same level because uh, that wouldn't be healthy. And uh, caffeine is obviously still a very strong drug too. Um, but no, I love it. I use uh, something called an AeroPress. And we've spoken about this earlier. Here's the familiar pop of the AeroPress. Yeah. <laughs> um, I actually really like supermarket coffee, George. Don't judge me. Um, I always go back to like this green packet of Aldi, sort of three strength, fairly mild and smooth tasting coffee. Um, Colombian roast, oh, excuse me, <clears throat> roast is always my, my preference um, for flavour. But I do like a strong five espresso um, coffee as well. Yeah, I do like coffee a lot. Um, I don't like too many of the mainstream coffee brands, um, you know, the chains. However, and again, don't judge me, I really don't mind a McDonald's coffee. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, that's, that's, that's fair enough. All right, they're not that bad. Now, for anyone that doesn't know what an AeroPress is, it's a, a plastic cafetiere. And I wanted to share this story with you earlier, and we said we'd save it for the end. So not long after our daughter was born, I decided to wash out my cafetiere properly, glass cafetiere. Now, you use a cafetiere, so you'll be familiar with the structure 
of said item. You know the plastic housing that holds the glass kind of yeah. bowl yeah. or dish bit, if you like. You can push it out to the plastic housing. Don't know if you know that. Um, and I very strongly wouldn't advise trying it. Um, I used to have it down to a T where you could push against the glass with your thumbs and pull on the plastic housing to release the glass beaker from its kind of house, if you like. One evening, like I said, I decided to wash it out and I put my thumb straight through the bottom of the glass housing. It wouldn't go through and um, it went pop. And hopefully you'll be able to see these pictures and we'll judge your reaction. Are you squeamish? Not at all. Right. So I sort of shouted up at my wife, who was upstairs with our little girl, and said, I need to go to hospital. And she was like, why? And I said, well, there's blood all over the kitchen. And she went, you're just exaggerating. So she came down with our little girl, who then wasn't going to sleep. And uh, she said, yeah, we need to go to hospital. So what I'd done is, I'll just make it a bit bigger, is, can you see that? No, you can't. Oh, yeah, I can. Ah, that is, that is painful. <laughs> that is, oh, that is a, that is a big one. Um, that's a flap. That's um, a proper flap of, sorry, we should have put a trigger warning on this for squeamish people. If you are squeamish, skip the next like 30 seconds of this podcast because that is a big old flapper skin. Um, yeah, so that's the stitches. Uh, there's one, two, there's five stitches in that. Um, but it, there's the bottom of the cafetiere where my thumb went through. Can you see that or not? Yeah, that's, um, hole in it. that's the risks of drinking coffee. It's a dangerous, a dangerous pastime. It is, and that's how it healed. And on my thumb now, you might or might not be able to see the white line across it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see Starting that. Starting there, goes all the way around and up the side. Um, yeah, that was really painful. So my wife was like, you're not having a glass cafetiere anymore. And that's how I came to be in the possession of an AeroPress. However, I now have two, and they make the most beautiful coffee as they push the air through and creating this kind of sort of i don't know just aerated bubbly beautiful flavor so that's how i take my coffee americano one sugar white if you ever meet me all right you can buy me one no for sure we'll we'll definitely grab a coffee at some point it's um yeah we won't have cafetiere coffee because that's dangerous for everyone yeah. um, ever don't yeah don't clean your cafetiers people keep them dirty uh, <laughs> otherwise you will cut your thumb off um yeah no that's that's i mean to be honest um there's no judgment here whatsoever because little known secret and i will i will uh, get kicked out of the coffee community um for saying this but i push sustainable and ethical coffee on the podcast all the time because yeah. it's the, the whole niche of the podcast I, and i've come across some incredible brands i've worked with brands they've i've been kind enough to have 
they've sent me coffee. I've got free coffee for the podcast, which has been great. But at the end of the day, I'm quite a poor student. If someone offers yeah. me to to get, if someone says I want coffee for in the morning, and uh, you know I don't have coffee with me, that's and I have three pound in my bank account, I'm just going to go down to Tesco. I'm not going to go to the nearest local roastery and pick it up direct from them in a freshly sealed nine pound bag. Um, so it's yeah, no judgment whatsoever. I I'm a fake coffee snob through and through. Love it. Um, <laughs> what yeah. a brilliant ending. <laughs> yeah, just just that's that. I mean, all my friends know that, but uh, now the entire world does as well. Oh. Um, and I think I think that is the perfect place to wrap up because this is possibly even after editing one of the longest episodes we've done, which I'm really Sorry. happy about. Oh no, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's the it's a good way to end it. Um, but before we finish, I just want to ask, where can people find you? What are your the, the things you want to plug, obviously, I know you're, as far as I'm aware, your social media is private. So Yeah, it is. Yeah. And a lot of people still don't like, well, follow it and stuff. That's cool. I don't mind. But, like, if sometimes people follow me and if they don't have anything in their bio, I um, tend to not accept them. I like Fair to enough. know who it is. Enough, yeah. If they're interested in nature, that's fine. If they're just a random person, I'm sort of because of my my work and stuff, I have to have a private account. Um, so yeah, I think it's bird underscore therapy, but just search for my name, Joe Harkness. Um, the only thing I want to plug is the teaching pack. I've already done that. It's on my website, joeharkness.co.uk. Um, watch this space. A couple of publishers are really interested in turning it into a book. It's like the best thing that's ever happened. I wish that had been in some well no i don't actually it's how how it came about is because of the birth therapy the book so no uh, you know it's great but yeah if that can become something more tangible to get properly pushed out into schools it would blow my mind to be able to help as many people as possible so yeah, yeah teaching facts great and i love feedback on it but it's difficult when you've got a private social media account in it. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, it's Um There's a little box saying teaching pack, download, grab it. It's free. You can buy me a Kofi if you want to, but it's not, it's not an obligation, so I don't really care. Um, just I want people to use it, so that's why it's free. Um, every now and then, if you follow me on Instagram, I do charity T-shirt runs. Um, I've given over two grand, well, it's about 2,300 pounds to charity now. Um, various charities, mental health charities and nature connection charities. Um, you know, charities that do work, getting people out into nature. And uh, yeah, I'm working with this guy, or have been working with this guy called Nick Sinden for a while now. He's under Sketch the Birdie on um, Instagram. Follow him, he's a really, really good, um, bird illustrator and um our t-shirt designs are well good if i say so myself um they are they're amazing they're really i'll good. tell you about the next one george it's uh no i'm not it'll be a surprise it'll be a yeah surprise. yeah keep it keep You'll it a surprise it, um but yeah, uh, i'm sure i will i mean all that's left to say is well thank you first of all to the listeners who have lasted this long and who have actually <laughs> listened to us ramble um, because it is going to be a long, long episode, but there's much longer ones out there. Joe Rogan's like two and a half hours, so it's fine. If he can do it, I can. 
Um, but thank you. Thank you so much for you for taking the time and the effort and the energy and just finally sorting this out. And um, we did it. Yeah, we <laughs> actually did it. It's amazing. And yeah, I beat David Lindo in terms of timing. So I'm happy. Um, buzzing. <laughs> buzzing. Buzzing for that. He's a he's a birding legend. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, another birding legend yourself just just for for taking this time it's been great cheers george thank you thanks again to joe for taking the time to speak to me today all the links to his social media and teaching pack will be in the description down below thank you so much as well for sticking with us if you listened throughout the whole episode it was a really long one today uh, but really worthwhile and i hope you didn't mind the little bit of feedback uh, sometimes there's a bit of audio disruption that we couldn't really really help unfortunately um but thank you very much for for listening so i think the subjects discussed today were really important so in today's episode we're featuring coffee from red bank coffee roasters red bank are driven by three guiding principles quality traceability and sustainability not only do they make visits to the farmers who grow their coffee in person but at home they have a strong focus on sustainability from the roaster model they use to their packaging. All the links to their website will be, as ever, in the description, and I can't wait to get down to my local coffee shop and pick up some delicious Red Bank coffee. Coffee with Conservationists is available on early release on a Patreon page run by me, George Steedman jones If you'd like to become a patron, you gain access to both early release episodes and bonus podcast-related content, as well as my wider natural history storytelling work. It's a way to bring all my work under one roof and support podcast contributors in the process. If you feel like you've learnt anything of value from the podcast, please consider becoming a patron through the link in the episode description. Coffee with Conservationists is available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and on early release on Patreon, as well as a few more streaming services. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman-Jones, and this is Coffee with Conservationists.